Welcome to the Baseball America Podcast. Coming to you from the Baseball America Podcast Nook. Controls your throwing strikes. Command is you're hitting the spot. That's yeah. stupid. I'm sorry. I'm going to rant about this again because that's just stupid, John. It is I mean, stupid. This is so ridiculous. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. If he was in the home run derby, I'd put him out with a decent chance of winning it against the big leaders. Surprised you could even hear us over the din of Ronnie McCabe's tape gun. Here we go in three, two, one. Play ball. Welcome, everyone, to a Baseball America podcast. Along with Ben Badler and J.J. Cooper, I'm John Manuel. I want to remind you that for the first time ever, Baseball America has brought you the complete midseason prospect update for all 30 organizations. It's an exclusive digital-only product that brings you information not available anywhere else. Get it all for just $4.99 now that the trade deadline has passed. But get ready for your September call-ups with the Baseball America midseason prospect update. Buy it from the App Store on iTunes or Zinio on Zinio newsstands at Zinio.com, Z-I-N-I-O.com. So... First time we did the midseason prospect update, enjoyed working on that, gearing up for the prospect handbook in the offseason, but there's still some obviously major league season to be played, and um, you know we've, we've had a pretty eventful week in the major leagues last week uh, with a lot of the rumors regarding Rosny Castillo, and obviously Ben has been all over that. Um, we had our man Walter Villa down in Miami go to the Rosny Castillo workout. I think, Ben, that's probably like your only regret of the whole Rosny Castillo, well, not your only regret of the... Rosny Castillo business because I feel like you've been on it from from uh, from when this guy first defected. But it sounds like the, the workout was a lot of fun. I, I'm, it's too bad we couldn't work that trip out, but it was uh, it was definitely a, a circus atmosphere around this guy. And it seems like Rosny Castillo just kind of standing on the shoulders of the Jose Abreu's, the Yasiel Puig, the Ones Espedes, um, and getting the largest contract of a Cuban free agent. He's, it's almost like he owes some. Uh, <laughs> Some finders fees to those other Cubans who defected before him, and uh, and the, the circus that kind of grew up around him before he signed with the Red Sox. Yeah, I'm sure, I hope he gives them like a fruit basket or or some sort of nice gift. Because if you ask most scouts, I think how you would stack up, you know, Cespedes and Abreu and Castillo at the time they left. You know, Cespedes was this scouting darling. He was. You know, in terms of performance, he he was dominant in Cuba. Um, hit for power, uh, hit for average, and and dominated at international tournaments. And was a guy who was at the time a center fielder with premium athleticism and and a ton of tools. Obviously, you can see those and, and the arm strength and and the power that he's showing now. Um, he would probably be if you stack those three guys up, he'd probably be uh, number one for for most scouts at the time they left. There were more questions about Jose Abreu. He was more of a split camp guy, uh, but he, he certainly had some of his uh, some strong believers who've obviously been uh, justified <laughs> based on on what he's yeah, done this year. And worked out well. And, yeah, and Castillo. It's it's, it's amazing because the the money obviously goes in in reverse order of how you'd stack them up. Um, you know, I'd probably put Puig in a in a different category just because of how how little he had played on on the national team and. And how little of, a, of an opportunity teams had to scout him after he left Cuba, but you know if you if you stack just those three guys up, I, I think Castillo would come in third. But obviously he's benefited from 
the success that Abreu has had and, and Cespedes has had and Puig has had. And, and with Soler in the minor leagues, I mean, he's he's been injured, granted, but at the same time, you look at the performance that he's put up and, and the tools that he's still showing, uh, this guy is one of the most dy- more dynamic prospects in the minors. I mean, a lot of these Cuban guys who are coming over who, who've been on the national team and, and, and had a lot of success there and, and who scouts have, have really been high on have, uh, you know, so far proven to be worth the investment. Uh, I think that's given ownership a, a lot more confidence uh, across baseball to to invest in, in these guys when, when they do come over. So, you know, is, is Castillo going to be as good as Abreu or, or Cespedes? Uh, I, I don't think he will be, but I, I think that the success that, that Puig and, and Cespedes and, and Abreu have had has certainly contributed to the confidence of, of ownership and, and for scouts as well to uh, be willing to to go, you know, put themselves on the line and, and be willing to invest the kind of uh, money that the Red Sox just paid to sign Castillo. Ben, along these lines, how much is it affected by just the, the fact that nowadays with the rules that there are on the draft, that the rules that there are on international spending for international amateurs, you know, who, who aren't veteran pro players, it's essentially the only place left that you can just kind of throw money at a player. This is kind of the Cubans now are in a very unique situation. It seems like. Yeah, there's no there's no draft pick compensation, uh, and you're not getting them at the tail end of their career. You know, you're you're not signing these guys like most major league free agents who are coming out and they're thirty, thirty one, thirty two years old. You know, maybe you're gonna get a, a guy who. Uh, hits free agency at, at 28 or so, but for the most part, you're getting guys on the, the tail end of their careers, whereas these Cuban guys are coming over and they're, you know, 26, 27 years old. Uh, Yosmani Tomas is coming over now and he's 23 years old. He's, he's going to be 24, I believe, in, uh, in November. So uh, you're getting these guys who have no, no draft pick compensation attached to them. And they're really on the either in the prime of their career or or heading into the prime years of their career at a time when most teams are are trying to lock up these these uh, their young talent to long term extensions. So guys are hitting the free agent market later than ever. So <laughs> these teams clearly have more money than they've ever had before, and there's fewer avenues for them to spend it because of the restrictions on. Draft signings and international signings at the amateur level uh, of guys who are under 23 years old for the international players, and they need to spend it or they want to spend it somewhere. And you know, two of the best places to spend it are on the Cuban players and on uh, Asian foreign professionals. If if they're you know if the star power is there, uh, like a like a Masahiro Tanaka. There are two there are two ways I could go in this conversation. You guys help steer me. One part of this conversation is that how much more information it seems like we have on Cuban players now than, say, 10 years ago when this more recent flood of players started. I I just kind of peg it to, like, Yunel Escobar in 2005 and Brian Pena when they came over, and Escobar even went into the draft. It was a second-round pick. We slapped slapped him into the top 200, pre-draft top 200, basically because he was Cuban and a shortstop. You know, we had various – we had scraps of information – so we could go in that direction and talk about the more information, or I almost like this part of me that wants to go back and I like I've seen ESPN doing these what if things. It's like 
I would be much more interested. Like, what if you go back and take the Cuban players who dominated amateur baseball in the '80s and '90s, the Omar Linares's, the Orestes Kindelans, and these guys? How good must those players? Or how good of big leaguers would those players have been? Because you had apocryphal stories about it back then. But now we see these guys who dominated Serie Nationale in this decade, and how good they've been as big leaguers with those older players. I'm it's probably more instructive hey. to talk about the point A, but I mean, I don't know. Uh, part point A is where I'd say to steer you on, Ben, which is just the question, you know, well, you phrase it, you phrased it pretty well. I mean, yeah, the, the, I mean, how much more information do we have now, Ben? Obviously, you were able to get more information because of, we, we, we sent you to Japan to watch these guys in the WBC in 2013. A lot of these guys, you know, scouts saw these guys in Mexico in 2009 um, when, they, when, that's, when, when in Cuba Japan. was in WBC there. Right. Well, uh, some some of these guys are playing in Japan now, obviously in, in NPV. But uh, I guess the other part of this, Ben, is that you're able to watch a lot of these guys basically on YouTube and over the internet. Uh, just how much more information did you have, or do clubs have, on these players? And how, when you talk to scouts about these guys, do they can do they ever compare the amount of information they have now to what they might have had ten years ago? I mean, it just seems like there's so much, so many more chances to see these players than there ever used to be. Yeah, I think things are changing uh, very quickly for teams, and I think some teams are realizing that they're they're very behind when it comes to the information that they have on these Cuban players. I mean, uh, you know, we're putting out these rankings and, and scouting reports and all these uh, Cuban players that uh, you know I've watched over the last, uh, you know, I think I've seen about four different international tournaments out of them. In the last 18 months, and, and at least 50 or, or more games, full games of uh, of these guys in the Cuban National Series, just from the last year alone, uh, I think the internet has the really leveled the uh, or, or really increased the amount of information that's available uh, on these guys beyond just the the stats. There's there's a lot better communication tools than there were. Uh, ten years ago, or or even five years ago, to to be able to get information on these players, uh, to be able to see these players firsthand, to be able to to see these guys on video, and there's there's a lot of teams that uh, I think are playing catch up in terms of the ability, uh, their ability to to acquire information on these players. I mean, just seeing these guys at at international tournaments that's 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 certainly important. I mean. The Cuban team just played uh, earlier this month in, in August. They played some, you know, little exhibition series in Colombia, and uh, I mean, there was uh, there was several international scouting directors there. There were some there were some pretty heavy hitter scouts there, and these were just Cuban guys playing. You know, a bunch of uh, the better players from Cuba uh, who are playing a bunch of guys who were you know released from uh, Colombia. <laughs> and a bunch of semi-pro guys, and so guys who aren't as good as like Jonathan and Donovan Solano. I mean, like those are Ronaldo two. Rodriguez. Those are two pretty good Colombian players I can think of. These are all guys not that good, right? And these guys are flying in to to see them, <laughs> just to get any any eyes they can on these Cuban players in person. But there's there's so much you miss when you only go on these international tournaments and, and international events if you're not seeing them playing. Every day, especially in a, a more comfortable environment uh, where they're where they're playing in Cuba, so uh, there's there's definitely a lot more information that we have on these guys, and it you know it, it varies from player to player. 
you know, somebody like Yulieski Guriel or, or Alfredo Despagne or, or, you know, Jose Abreu before he left. These were guys who were, you know, seen all the time on, on the national team and were, were pretty well known. Uh, there's some other guys, obviously, who, who don't have the same exposure, so uh, they're, they're certainly less known about them. But uh, I think our knowledge of, of Cuban players, of, of anybody who, who really has talent and, and major league potential in Cuba, there's a, there's a lot more that we know about them today uh, compared to what we may may have known five or, or ten years ago on these guys. I mean, that's, that's goes, that even goes to something as basic as age. I mean, ten years ago, you know, I remember how useful it was. Like, hey, the, the what was the guy that the Yankees had? Juan Miranda, first baseman? Mm-hmm. Right. Where he told the, the Yankees he was three years younger than he really was, and the Yankees kept on telling him, oh, no, he's 25. And I'm like... I have the media guide from when he played against the Orioles in 1999, and his birthday is in '82 for that event. I mean, like, I think you're wrong. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, that's where we were 10 years ago, and now you have just like years of data on a lot of these guys playing in 15U, U, uh, IBAF tournaments, or back when they were 16U, 18U. We have just so much more data points. So. Part of it, I think, is the internet, but part of it is just the spread and the growth of international baseball. It feels like then, the WBC and these more international youth tournaments give us more. Uh, these are more established, and it feels like these are now must-see events for evaluators for all thirty clubs. If not all thirty, they need to be for all thirty. Yeah, I think uh, I think some teams are are reevaluating, or certainly should reevaluate some of their practices with, with regards to how they evaluate Cuban players. I, I know some teams have uh, certain people who are hired who you know, their main focus is just the, the Cuban market, which is a little bit strange because it's, it's not like you're you know, a Dominican or a Venezuelan supervisor where your job is to cover a whole bunch of players that are going to be eligible to sign. And in Cuba, it's, you don't know whether they're going to come out and uh, or whether they're even ever going to come out, and you're, you're, you might even you might never have a chance to to sign a player or you scout for ten to fifteen years. But when they do come out, uh, it, it's it's much more important if you can hit on a guy uh, like Jose Abreu, uh, or if you have information on on Yasiel Puig, for example, before he leaves, because you're you might not get a chance to evaluate him as as much as you'd like to uh, once he's outside of Cuba. Uh, the dollars are, are so much higher on the investment on these guys compared to what you're looking at in, in signing a, a 16-year-old kid out of the Dominican Republic or, or Colombia or, or Mexico. Um, th- this is this market has become so so important for teams uh, that it's it's surprising to me that that you don't and the most there that every team doesn't have somebody uh, who's dedicated to just covering uh, the Cuban market or, or who's at least sole focus is to make sure that. You know their team has knowledge of of every or, or every major league caliber player who's who's in Cuba. Two two questions along those lines. One is is that how much of an, do the we haven't seen it play out this way, but does Toronto have an advantage, or you know because I know they're part of MLB, but at the same time, if you're a Canadian citizen, getting into Cuba is is not really an issue. I know it's a little easier in recent years for U.S. citizens as well, but. Or is there still pretty much a, a complete embargo on actually scouting players in Cuba? And the the second part with that is is you've you've talked about some teams are a little behind us. Who do you see as the teams who really are on top of it when it comes to scouting, you know, the Cuban talent? 
Yeah, I, I think uh, if if you if you were a Blue Jays scout and, and you wanted to uh, fly into Cuba and, and wear your Blue Jays hat, I don't think that would uh, I don't think that would go over so well. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, the thing is that every team employs uh, a whole bunch of international scouts who live in uh, the Dominican Republic and Venezuela and, and Mexico and. And, and Mexico and, and Venezuela in particular are countries that have uh, positive relationships uh, with Cuba. So uh, there's all sorts of ways that you can work for a team and still fly into Cuba uh, and see players. Uh, I wouldn't do it. I, I wouldn't recommend doing it, especially if you're an American scout uh, living in the United States and uh, need to get your passport stamps. Uh, through there, but uh, you know, I, I'm sure there are ways that people can go into Cuba uh, and and see these guys firsthand. Uh, you know, a, a much safer way, I, I think, is probably to just just you know they they televise a lot of games in Cuba, uh, and you know if if you're savvy enough, you you should be able to get your hands on uh, on copies of of those games. So. Um, I think that would be a much safer thing for, uh, for for clubs to do rather than risk going into Cuba and 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 then just see these guys when they are at these international tournaments and and you'll get to see the majority of the the top players up close and and taking BP and and get a little bit closer look at them when when they do go to these international tournaments. And, and which what, which are the teams that really have kind of already put in a significant effort to make sure they're very much on on you know just a couple. I know there's a lot, but. Are there any that jump out like that are really on top of, of making sure that they are at all these events? Um, I, I think uh, you know most teams when it comes to going to these international tournaments. I, I think most teams at this point have realized that all right, we we need to be here. There's whether it's this small tournament in Colombia or or the World Baseball Classic where uh, pretty much everybody goes to. Um, I think every team realizes that you know this. Th- these guys are. We, we can't afford to miss on these guys when when they're out. So uh, I think most teams are, are realizing that th- these are. Uh, th- they need to do more when it comes to being able to to evaluate and and get information on on all these Cuban guys. It just really seems like Ben. The key is, as the dollars go higher, is having more certainty. To use the word that you use in the article that we're pegging this podcast to. The more information you have, the more you can be certain and go up in dollars on these players, which is kind of why it makes the Yasiel plea contract. It's what we wrote at the time where you just, you know, I think you wrote, you, you, uh, you know, elaborated on it at the time. Like, it would be very difficult for any club to have a high amount of certainty on Yasiel plea at the time, and information on him was just pretty sketchy. But, I mean, it really does make... The fact that he got twelve million dollars more than Jorge Soler, and both got nine-year nine-year contracts, there was quite a bit more information about Soler than there was about Puig at the time. That was a forty-two million dollar gamble that now looks like a forty-two million dollar bargain, obviously for the Dodgers. Um, but I mean, just maybe if you can just kind of put because in the present context, how much more information do we have on a player like Castillo compared to a guy like Puig, specifically, who I know is a is an outlier case in many ways. But he just seemed like at that time he was just this mystery man who was being shopped around Mexico, and it was kind of like a almost a circus. It seemed like they grew up around Puig. Even his scouting 
uh, it was very, very hard player to scout and to evaluate at that time, right? Yeah, that's that's part of the challenge of of scouting Cuban players is that you know you you want to evaluate a major league free agent or or even a even all the way down to a sixteen year old kid in the Dominican Republic or, or an eighteen year old high school player. I mean, if you just want to limit it to the the amateur side, if if you're making decisions in in the draft, for example you're going to have a lot more certainty of information or at least I would hope you would if you've done your job on the 21-year-old college junior who you're going to have followed for uh, hopefully at least three years, probably have information on them going back to high school. Um, you're not going to have any difficulty seeing these players as, as, uh, with with a lot of frequency leading up to uh, the time when, when you're eligible uh, to draft them. If you go down to a high school senior, you know there's there's going to be if if you want to see him play every game that they play on the uh, in the summer before the draft and, and during their high school season, you can get a lot of certainty on them then. Uh, but it's it's not going to be what it is compared to the the college junior. You're going to have more more certainty and, and more history on. Uh, in, in Cuba, it can be extremely variable based on. Uh, how many times you've seen these guys at uh, international uh, events or whether they've been on the, the international circuit at all, um, going back to their, their junior national team days and, and how much you're able to see these guys play on video uh, when they, uh, or possibly even in, in person while they're, while they're still in Cuba. Um, so that can create some pretty, pretty disparate uh, levels of certainty on these guys. I mean, we talk about a guy like uh, Alfredo Despagne or or Frederick Cepeda, who's you know these guys have been on the Cuban national team for uh, you know for, for several years. I mean Cepeda's probably or he, he is heading into the the twilight of his career, and, and I'm sure he's not going to. Or I, I would be very surprised if if he ever uh, left Cuba. I mean these are guys that uh, any scout who's who's been following uh, Cuban baseball should should be extremely extremely familiar with these guys. Uh, but then you have a guy like, uh, you know, a Rysel Iglesias who uh, you've, you've seen at, at international tournaments and, and you have some more uh, information on, but maybe not quite as high on, uh, uh, not, not quite as high of a certainty level on him as, as you'd like, or, or somebody, uh, a younger player like uh, Guillermo Aviles or Andy Banez. You know, two of the better young position players in Cuba, uh, but they haven't really had the the chance to play on the the national stage uh, in in recent years. I mean, Ibanez was uh, you know was at the World Baseball Classic and, and did play last year uh, last summer a little bit, but beyond that, uh, that's really not uh, a lot of information. It's it's easy to see those guys that. You know, one international tournament, or, or see a VLA's playing against the the the, uh, the U.S. college national team uh, last month in in Cuba, and try to come away with with a bunch of conclusions based on uh, you know a limited look. But but I think that's it's a dangerous thing to do. So uh, all these guys in Cuba, that's one of the big factors. Is is some of these guys you you know extremely well, uh, like a Yoenis Cespedes or, or a Jose Abreu. And then some of these guys, it's uh, there's there's much much less certainty about 
uh, the, the the confidence that you have in, in the evaluation of these guys. Well, Ben, you only have uh, – I'm not going to give away the list, obviously. We want you to uh, – so, uh, you know, we want you to subscribe and check out Ben's uh, top 15 players still in Cuba with some bonus players included. But only two of the top ten are pitchers, Ben, and it just feels like uh, – you know, this is something that has been going on in Cuba for more than a decade. Uh, JJ's heard me make this rant for a long time. Cuba's national team dominance ended the day that Jose Contreras left the island. And he was the ace for Cuba's national team for six, seven years. And you had Ciro Lise and Norge Vera at the same time. And you know, before them, you had Omar Ahete and the Levon Hernandez and El Duque. He had this golden age of Cuban pitchers, really, from like the 80s through the early parts of the last decade. But since Contreras, really, outside of a world as Chapman, Cuba's national team never really developed an ace and never won internationally any significant tournaments, not when anybody else. Tip of the cap to Pedro Luis Lazo, too. Oh, yeah, thank you for bringing him. I mean, obviously, on the national team, he was more closer than starter, but he's he's the all-time wins leader in Serie Nacional history. So I'm glad you remembered Pedro Lazo, because I didn't. But uh, it's been a decade-long down cycle for pitching in Cuba, and it feels like that's still the case. If, 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 so the first question I have for you is, first, is that still the case? And second of all, what are the reasons that maybe scouts or maybe that you might have of why that might be the case? Why is this talent cycle for pitching in Cuba just so down? Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny that the probably – well, the hardest thrower on the planet is Aroldis Chapman. Right. It, it's true irony. And, and you know, when he was healthy, the guy with probably the nastiest stuff in the game among starters, Jose Cuban. Fernandez, yep. also Cuban. And then you look at... And Carlos Rodon, top college stuff the last three years, Cuban-American, but still Cuban. <laughs> he could pitch for Cuba in a World Baseball Classic team if, if we didn't have actual Cubans. But, uh, yeah... Just the rest of the talent in Cuba, there's, it's so rare to find a guy who, who throws 95 there or, or who has a, a plus fastball. Just the, there's just such a lack of, of velocity there. I mean, there's, there's some younger guys who, uh, who can throw hard, like a Yasel Sierra, but he doesn't have the command yet. But, uh, you know, or, or a Norhe Ruiz who, who does have that feel for pitching and, and could be a guy who could carry the the national team for a while if, if he does stay. But, um, but yeah, most guys in Cuba, it's just almost every guy is this like 85 to 88 throwing like a, a slurvy breaking ball. I mean, you even see the, the guys that they, they just pitched uh, against the, against the college national team. I mean, there's you know, a couple of lefties who, you know, one of them can, you know, Maybe crack ninety if, if he if he really humps up, and, and another one in, in Julio Martinez who you know throws also eighty five to eighty eight and with a really good curveball. But uh, you know if he comes over to the states, he's he's going to get crushed by the time he gets to the the upper levels. Right, uh, right. There's just such a lack of of major league caliber pitching, and, and we see that in the guys who come over. It's it's almost other than Chapman and. Uh, you know, Armando Rivero is is doing all right in in the Cubs system, uh, and and Jorge Despaigne I, I think is uh, going to come back to earth pretty quickly uh, with the Padres. I mean, Miguel Gonzalez is not looking so hot with the Phillies. He left his arm uh, in Taiwan that in that game against the U.S. College National Team, where he threw what like ten and a third innings against Garrett Cole. 
Yeah, I mean, most of these guys are, are more along the lines of like uh, Unieski Maya or, right. or Hinojosa who signed with the Red Sox. It's there's just not the the caliber of of pitching there. It's it's bad, and and then when you watch a, a game in in Serie Nacional, it's I mean, you, we can see the guys who are on the national team, uh, and most of those guys aren't really major league caliber arms. You can imagine what the rest of the league looks like. Yeah, it, <laughs> I mean, once you dip into a, a Cuban bullpen, it's the the <laughs> caliber of arm is generally not getting better, <laughs> and it's it's. <laughs> It's it's it, you can see on this list it's it's very heavily slanted towards uh, the position players that's for sure. It also does create some bad habits for the hitters, doesn't it? Because you saw when you went to Japan, uh, and you see it, there's almost softball swings for some of these guys because you don't have to be short and direct when you're facing 85 to 86 on a regular basis. No, and that's I mean that's one of the things too that we've seen guys like uh, Cespedes and and Abreu make adjustments to, and it's it's a credit to them, and it's it's impressive that uh, they've been able to do it, is because yeah, it's it's a big question mark. How are you going to respond uh, to facing pitchers in the states where I mean, geez, every amateur pitcher in these All America games are watching us throw in ninety three. Um, the <laughs> The major league arms are, are throwing harder than ever. Every bullpen arm it seems like they're throwing 95 plus these days. How are you going to react to that when you're very rarely seeing anybody who's who's throwing over over 92 and and most guys don't even top 90. So uh, you're, saying that that, you're saying Isla De La Juventud doesn't have multiple 95 guys coming out of the bullpen? We had a little uh, phone outage there that spared a bad joke. So we're just going to move on like the joke never happened. I don't know. JJ can't do that. But the rest of I'm you get that. The rest of you get that benefit. Um, we do have a couple questions on Twitter. Obviously, uh, if you're listening to the podcast, you may be familiar with us. He's at JJ Coop 36. That's JJ Cooper. Ben's at Ben Badler. I'm at John Manuel BA. Uh, and Red Goodish asked if get each if each is given an MLB center field job this winter, rank Betts, Bradley, and Castillo for the next six years. JJ, I'm gonna start with you. I mean, obviously Ben has more information on Rosny Castillo, but. Betts, Bradley, especially, and what you've read of Castillo, how do you line those three guys up? Bradley's a, a distant third because sadly, sad, sad but true. Defense, defense has been everything you know that you would hope for. I don't think you can completely write off his bat, but at this point, you do have to say that this is not that he got a hundred at bats. He's been given two tries; it hadn't worked yet, and you know, so he's a distant third. I, I would say. I'd be interested if Ben disagrees on this. I still have bets first because, to me, you know, you are looking at, at someone with, with excellent athleticism, very young, should continue to get better, and just has a very advanced uh, understanding of, of hitting for his age. He's just such a dynamic athlete. It sounds like Castillo also is a dynamic athlete. I mean, I think what? I would like bets a little bit better if he were a second baseman. In this question of center field to center field, I think I'd give a slight edge to Castillo because it sounds like he has a chance to hit for more power, Ben. Is that how you'd line it up? Yeah, I think uh, where Castillo is right now, he certainly has the highest power potential of that group, although I think in game it's more of a line drive type stroke. But, yeah, I, w- I would still take bets over Castillo, I think. You know, Castillo is definitely a, an aggressive hitter. He's he's not a complete free swinger up there, but I, I don't think he's going to give you a lot of uh, – he's not going to draw a lot of walks to 
to boost that on base percentage like Betts can. I think he's going to be, uh, you know, Betts gives you speed. He gives you uh, a guy who can hit, who has very good plate discipline and, and some surprising stock for his size too. I would I would definitely put him first of that group. And I don't know, Bradley. It's that season that he's had has just been so disappointing. I mean, it's it's a that's a Gold Glove center fielder if he can hit barely enough just to stay on the field every day. But obviously that hasn't been the the case this year. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I, maybe I'm just a Bradley apologist, but I still see, well, I was going to say more upside than he's shown this year. It's, it's hard to, hard to <laughs> get much. If he has less, it's yeah. the real trouble. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, I mean, this is a guy who, I mean, he dominated at, at every level he was at up through the, the higher levels of the minor leagues, and, and this year he just fell flat. And, and it's, you know, it's like you said, it's, it's not like he wasn't given the opportunity. It's not like he was just up for a month or, or six weeks and then they the Red Sox pushed him back down to AAA. They you know, they gave him every opportunity all season long, uh until yeah. this month and, and then they had to send him back down. So uh but I, I still think I think Bradley's approach is good. I, I still like his uh his offensive upside and you know, even if he can just be a, a steady player, I, I think the defense is there for for him to be a, an above average player, but you know, I don't know what the I don't know what the Red Sox are going to do with with all these guys. I mean, I understand, yeah, you know, if you really like Castillo, go ahead and and jump on him and and figure out what to do with with all these uh, all these players later. But I'm not really sure what they're what they're going to do with with Bradley. I, I guess he's he looks like the certainly the odd man out. But but Betts is really the more curious guy. I'm, I'm not really sure what they're where they're going to put him next year. It is a tough question. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what they what they. Uh, I, I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know what they plan on doing with Mookie Betts. He's athletic enough to try a lot of different things, but it's more of a right side of the infield arm, and he does not. You know, th- their biggest opportunities right now are shortstop and third base, and those are not optimal for Mookie Betts. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know what they're going to do with him. So uh, that was a good question by Red. We also have a question from a friend of BA, uh, Tom Reardon. He's the sports information director at UNC Wilmington. He's the guy who, uh, for baseball anyway, he's the guy who directed us to Matt Batts as an intern for us last summer. Matt Batts now dazzling in the Twins organization. But Tom asked about Tyler Deloach. He's been solid at two levels for the Angels this summer. Where is he in their plans, JJ? Not a Cuba question, so I'm going to let you answer a Tyler Deloach question. Um, he's still, you know, a late round pick. He's had a very good year. He made it up to double A. So what you're saying is either the top five for the Angels. I was gonna say you're, you're talking <laughs> 85, 86, 87 mile an hour fastball. You know, understanding of how to throw. You know, change up for strikes as well. Uh, deceptive. Um, so a top ten guy for the uh, Angels. A top ten guy potentially. You know, I, I mean, he sounds like a Cuban guy. <laughs> <laughs> if you. If you thought the Angels' top 30 last year was, they were the clear number 30 of our of the organizations. And really last year, I, I wrote the list, you edited it, it, you got to like number 11, and I, as I put it, it's like, look, we can order these however right. you want to at this point, because it was pretty fringy from that point on. Let's just rank them how they fit best on the page. Well. We didn't do that. Well, going to this year's, the Angels have promoted several guys from that group. They've traded away a ton of guys from that top 30. They've DFA'd a few. They've DFA'd a few. This list this year is going to be worse. It's going to be rougher. And I do think, Deloach, again, I don't think he really profiles as 
uh, having a significant big league career. In no way does that mean, though, that he will not. He is a starter who's reached double A, who's had some success. He has 10 strikeouts per nine for his minor league career. I, I, I think he probably makes the 30. Um, and, and, you know, using the BA grade, he may make the 30 as a 40 medium. And that <laughs> wow. may make the 30. I mean, that may make the 30. <laughs> well, that made the 30 last year, for sure. Um, ben, back on the back on the Cuban uh, question, um, you, you in this in the, especially in the Castillo discussions. I mean, how uh, how tough was it to sort out fact from fiction on some of these rumors? I mean, like there well, there are so many Cuban free agents now. Names get thrown out there as rumors. Um, it, it feels like they get thrown out when the agent is the only source and players get played up. How difficult was it to sort out that fact from fiction? Not just on. Castillo, but also just on on some of the other players who've signed over the years, um, whether it's Puig, Cespedes, these kind of guys. I mean, it feels like that's one of the bigger things. Is that from a media standpoint, there's uh, you ha- there's a different way to have to cover it now too, because uh, I have a feeling that most people don't know that you can watch these guys play on the internet. Yeah, I think, and that was one of the motivations too for putting all putting these pro, putting this project and these rankings and these scouting reports together is that you know, we, we want to know these guys as well as we can before they leave Cuba if, if you're waiting to hear about them after they leave Cuba it's it's that's not the optimal way to do it I mean we don't uh, I don't think that's the best way to do it for sure then um, it's you know for the most part when a, a big time guy leaves it's it's usually somebody who has played on the national team, uh, somebody who is, uh, you know, a pretty well-known guy. So, you know, when when uh, when Jose Abreu left, and we had this uh, emergency Jose Abreu podcast. I mean, <laughs> right? Uh, when Jose, or excuse me, when Yohan uh, uh, has left, we knew he was going to be uh, a big deal. When when Rysel Iglesias or Are uh, You Barena, or he was Are You Baruena, right? Um, you know, when these guys leave, we usually we usually make a big deal of the guys who uh, we know are, are going to be made a big deal about uh, by the team. So, but then, yeah, you do see other. Uh, yeah, I get. I remember getting questions: who who's going to be the better player, uh, Daniel Carbonell or uh, Rusny Castillo? And I'm <laughs> right. just like scratching my head at. at this like how how can this really uh, is this like a serious question? I mean, it's it's not even close. <laughs> it was between. a seventy million dollar valuation difference between those two players, right? Yeah, and that's <laughs> so yeah. Or, or like uh, Micel Severio is, is another name I, I get asked about. This guy throws and you know he doesn't crack ninety miles an hour um, unless something has changed very recently. But, you know, the, the main guys tend to be the ones who, who play on the national team or, or if there's some reason they, they haven't played on the national team. You know, that's, that's why we, you know, put this together is, uh, to, so that we know all these guys who come out uh, before they come out. Well, that's the other thing I wanted to ask you about. Is, uh, one other, I think one of the other big differences besides the velocity is just the profile does not exist in Cuba. Correct me if I'm wrong, but, I mean – most of the guys that you have on this list who are position players, if they're not outfielders, they play second base. And that is different uh, than any other market. 
There's not a giant rush on college second baseman in the draft. Uh, there's not a rush on high school second baseman. We had Forrest Wall, who's one of the highest drafted second basemen out of high school in the history of the draft this year. Forrest Wall can rake. <laughs> that guy's really good. But, um, you know, in, in, in the Dominican and in Venezuela, and your coverage of Latin American prospects, are second basemen at a priority in that? My sense is never, not really. And yet in Cuba, you put a list of 15 prospects together, and they're, it's hit or dominated, but three or four of these guys are second basemen. Uh, is that just a fluke, or is just the profile different in, when you watch Cuban baseball where a guy who may profile at one position if he were in the U.S. or Canada would profile uh, – it would play as a different position in Cuba? So it's a good question. I hadn't really thought of it that way. And, and you know, obviously Guriel is another guy who – Right, second uh, baseman uh, for a lot of his career. Yeah, could I mean, and I'm sure he could play it right now too. I think he still has the the athleticism and uh, certainly <laughs> certainly plenty of arm and, and the range to play there too. Now, if uh, I, I don't expect him to ever leave uh, Cuba, but but if he ever did, I, 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 that flexibility would uh, make him even more marketable. But yeah, I think I think uh, he's a member. If memory serves, either he's a member of the party, like every member of the family is in the party. I know his dad, his father. When his baseball career ended, he had a government job. Like he was like in the Ministry of Sport, and he was a member of the Communist Party in Cuba. So I don't know if that confers party membership on the rest of the family, but I think it would be very difficult for a member of the, to imagine a member of the party leaving because that certainly, when you're a star baseball player and you're in the party, that tends to uh, bring privileges that other Cubans don't have. Yeah, I mean, you can see how much you know, they certainly trust him too. Especially if you you're letting a guy go to Japan the way they let uh, him and and Frederick Cepeda and Alfredo de Spagne. Um, you know, they're letting these guys leave the country uh, for a reason. They they have confidence that they're not going to be going any going anywhere uh, if if they let them out. So um, so yeah, I, I would say those guys certainly have a, a very low chance unless some law. I mean, I think Cuba clearly wants to make money. Off these players, I would not be surprised if more players uh, end up playing in in Japan. Given that, right. uh, it sounds like the majority of the money uh, in their salaries goes back to the Cuban government. So this is a way for the Cuban government to make money off these players. And I'm sure if they could sell them directly to major league teams, they would be. I'm sure they would be elated to do that. But yeah. obviously, there's uh, laws that would prevent that from happening. But they could function uh, like an independent league, though. Or, yeah, or like uh, almost like a Me- – yeah, similar to like the Mexican league, I think, is the model right. that they want where, all right, well, we'll, we'll sell you the rights. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll sell you this guy, uh, but we're going to keep, you know, 75% or, or 80% of the contract in exchange for, um, you know, your ability to, to have this guy on your roster. Now, I, I, one other thing with that I did want to ask you was, it does seem like that has changed a little bit, though, the the, the rhetoric that comes out of Cuba when a player leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, you follow this even closer than, than we do, so I wanted to ask you. I remember five, ten years ago when a player left, it was pretty much that he was a non-entity who was a, a traitor to the cause. And, <laughs> and, I mean, it was... Seriously. He ceased to exist. And now there seems to be... Obviously, not. That's not for the Cuban people. That's been the Cuban government's viewpoint. But it seems to be that there's a little bit more um, 
A lot more. A lot more acceptance of an of pride. <laughs> I even on a net, even on a governmental level of look at what these players are doing in U.S. baseball. And they celebrated. It felt like the Cuban. Uh, I remember reading at the Havana Times, they were celebrating the five Cubans who were in the All Star game this year. That would never have happened when Contreras was playing. That would never have happened. Yeah, it's the attitude has definitely changed, and, and I think it goes back to like we're seeing these loosening restrictions of Cuban players who are being allowed to play in uh, Japan, or I think they thought Mexico was going to be uh, more of an open opportunity for them, uh, but obviously that seems to have been, for the most part, shut down uh, unless you're using a, an illegal passport, I guess. But uh, <laughs> But yeah, there's, there's, I, I think it, all, it just boils back to the people who are, you know, running the show in Cuba right now are, are much more amenable to the idea of, oh, we can sell these guys, uh, uh, sell their or rights or, or lease their rights to other leagues, and and we can make money off them doing that. Uh, yeah, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds great, especially uh, given the financial struggles that uh, the league there is is having. I mean, it's. Uh, they 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 are not opposed to making money off these players, and and I think if if laws ever change in in the United States, which which might happen, and and would dramatically transform uh, the marketplace for for Cuban talent, uh, I think they want to be ready for for if that ever happens, so that they can you know make money off these guys. One thing, one other thing, kind of a, a, along those lines, you, you talked about the the possibility of of there being kind of a you know, uh, uh, some changes in the rules maybe, you know, down the road. Going back, though, to, like, these guys playing in Japan, the thing that jumps out to me is, is this is also important for Cuban players because this is more co- a, a better caliber of competition. That I, I think there is actually some usefulness. You talk about, you know, how for Goriel and all, it seems like the light bulb turned back on a little bit. How important do you think it is for these players who get this opportunity, not just in the occasional tournament, but... To actually, as we see more and more of these players, especially going to Japan, how much does this help them from the standpoint of, of developing their skills because they're facing better competition? Or even just playing last year in the Caribbean Series, I mean, even though it was only one team, like you said. I mean, I, JJ's point, I'm piggybacking on his question while interrupting it, but it feels like the. Uh, do you feel like the Cuban sports ministry or the government decided they needed this increased level of competition for their players, or do you think it's just money making, or maybe a little bit of both? Because I think JJ's I think, right. I think there's a a big aspect to this is the increased competition level for these players that maybe being so insular was not helping their players get better. I think the main uh, I think it does help the players get better just by playing against more advanced competition. I mean, it's it would be like if you had a 28 year old player like Despagne, but let's say you never let him, you know, advance past the Florida State League. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> would he develop? It's, he probably would continue to become a better player, but he, not as good as he probably would be if, if you let him face double-A, triple-A, and, and obviously major league pitching. Uh, so I think facing more advanced pitching and, and more advanced fielding, too, uh, in a lot of cases in, in Japan, certainly helps the players develop. But I think the, the primary motivations for that were for uh, the Cuban government to make money off these players and then to provide some incentive perhaps for 
players to try to stay in Cuba. So, uh, all right, look, the money is, is getting so big now where Rusty Castillo is getting $72.5 million. You know, if, if somebody really, really wants to leave Cuba and, you know, wants to make, a, you know, a $50 million contract or, or even a, you know, a, what did Iglesias get, uh, 27 or, yeah. or $30 million or so from the Reds, um, you know, if they're if they're that motivated to leave, they're they're going to leave. But at the same time, you know, if if you do provide this outlet for them to play in Japan and and test their skills against better competition and and make some more money for themselves, um, you know, maybe that reduces the incentive for guys to uh, to want to leave and, and to try to defect from Cuba. And it's you know you make that kind of money and, and you bring it back to Cuba. Um, you know, you can live pretty well, even if you're you're only bringing back twenty percent or, or whatever the percentage is of uh, the contract that actually goes to the players themselves, and and you're not having to go through these risks that uh, somebody like Leonis Martin or, or Yasiel Puig or or a lot of these other guys go through when they're um, when they're defecting through uh, you know these channels of uh, human traffickers and and leaving their families behind and, and wondering if they're they're ever going to see them again. So. I think between uh, the incentives of trying to make money off these guys and, and trying to uh, stem the, the wave of defections that have come over, I, I think those are really the two main motivations for the Cuban government to allow these guys to play overseas. That certainly makes sense. It, it really does feel like, Ben, like if, if the Cuban government had to do it over again, and I'm, I'm presupposing a lot here, but you always, you always wonder – uh, I, I, you know, there were such close ties between Cuba and Venezuela when Hugo Chavez was in charge of Venezuela, and we've mm-hmm. seen the direction that baseball's gone in. The MLB's relationship with Venezuela and signing Venezuela's players has gone backwards in the last decade. With the Venezuelan summer leagues down to what five teams now? Um, most of these players, you know, with their showcase by their uh, by their trainers, are brought to the Dominican now. They don't stay in Venezuela. Growing chaos, economy kind of in shambles. But 10, 15 years ago, this was a petro state with a lot of oil money. You almost wonder if that would have been an outlet for Cuban players where they could have played in some kind of Venezuelan league underwritten by oil money. But Hugo Chavez had bigger problems, obviously, than yeah. fixing a baseball league. But I mean, this is, this is, I'm not basing this off, I'm not making this up. This was Peter Barkman's idea, was that this was what was going to happen. That he, he wrote this article about 10 years ago, that there, there was going to be a Venezuelan league underwritten by oil money. Because I think that P, the Cubans saw it coming, but this is their only outlet. Is uh, I think they wanted to play in Mexico. I think they would prefer to go to Mexico, Ben, but Mexican league being part of the National Association kind of was a, uh, to put in a BA vernacular, a fly in the ointment there. Yeah, that's that's basically what got that shut down. We were, I was expecting, and, and I think the Cuban government was expecting, and the Mexican league was counting on, yeah. uh, uh, I don't know about hundreds, but certainly dozens and, and dozens of Cubans uh, coming over to the Mexican league, not necessarily all star players like Alfredo de Spagne, but just, you know, solid double-A, triple-A caliber guys who uh, could come over and, and be really good players and in the Mexican league. And, and obviously that got shut down, uh, because of, uh, you know, the, the concerns over OFAC law. Yeah. The Barbaro Canizares caliber player. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that caliber. That's a four, a type player, good, solid triple a player, 
that was a Cuban who played in the international league for several years, and now he's playing in Mexico, and that's a good Mexican league player. Or Ronnie Mustelier. I mean, like Yankee fans remember Ronnie Mustelier from the last couple of years. Um, that guy's raking in Mexico right now. So that's a perfect league. It's just it's a, it's really a shame. I'm I'm just looking at the Mexican league stats. There are two Cubans in the top ten hitters who are in that regular that regular season's already over, and the pitching leader is Amari Sanit, for other Cuban former Mets prospect, led the Mexican League in ERA. So I mean, that's a perfect league for Jose Contreras was tenth in the Mexican League in ERA this year. Wow, I didn't even know he was still there. So that's a perfect league for Cubans. It's just it's a shame that that couldn't work out because I think we would have been funding some trips for Ben Badler to Mexico. If that had happened, so <laughs> you, you could have wrapped. Uh, you could have uh, had some trips down there. Ben, we're going to wrap up the podcast unless you had any last uh, any other thoughts on this uh, Cuban market. But great work, obviously, on the uh, on the prospect list from Cuba. Anything else you had to add? No, I think. Uh, I mean, now it sounds like the next two guys. I mean, we're talking about separating the uh, the real prospects from the suspects in in Cuba. And I mean, the two main guys to know now. Um, there's probably a hundred, if, if not more, uh, Cuban defectors who are uh, running around the Dominican Republic and, and various countries who are probably organizational type guys at best or, or very fringe prospects. But uh, definitely the next name to know right now is uh, Yasmani Tomas, uh, big, big time power hitter. Um, saw him at the World Baseball Classic, and right. I think every scout who uh, saw him there. There, there. There's some concerns about the swing, but he was extremely impressive there. Uh, then when we saw him at the... Last summer in Durham. Uh, yeah, last summer when he came and, and played against the U.S. college national team and everybody there was throwing, you know, 94-plus and he had a lot of trouble catching up to that velocity or, or hitting good breaking pitches. And then from seeing him in uh, in Cuba this year, probably saw him take... Uh, just off the top of my head, maybe 30-plus at-bats, maybe maybe a little bit more than that. Um, he he didn't look quite as good as he did uh, in Japan in, in the World Baseball Classic, but, you know, look, the, the power is there. There's arm strength to, uh, to play in right field. Uh, this is a guy who maybe it's, it's questionable whether he's ready right away. Uh, might be a guy who would go to AAA. Uh, at first, but I could see a team, you know, whatever team's going to make a, a sizable investment in him, putting him straight to the big leagues. He'd be, uh, you know, I could see him going straight there. So he's going to be the probably the next big name uh, to know. And then the and he's the a more, big he's really, yeah, he's like six yeah. two two thirty, right? Yeah, he's a uh, he's a big lower half. That's <laughs> that's, that's what that's I recall. Sure. He's he's very he's a very thickly built individual. Uh, but he, he actually moves surprisingly well. He's, you know, he's not a – I don't think he's even an, an average runner. He's, he's more of like a 40, 45 at best type runner, um, although we've seen these Cuban guys come over, get into better shape, and, and start running faster even even in their uh, mid-20s like uh, like an Alexander Guerrero uh, was doing. So uh, he's obviously going to be some something to, to track going forward. So uh, he's a name to know, and then – Yoan Moncada. Yeah, uh, that was a great article you had on Friday. That was uh, that was fun. Moncada, um, whether he's a Generation Y player or not, uh, he sounds like the there, there's a high risk because there's less certainty with this guy. But 
uh, sounds like tools wise, he's the most exciting young Cuban out there. Yeah, I mean, this is a guy who you know they have these junior leagues in Cuba that are you know sixteen and under and, and eighteen and under, and you know when Puig was the uh, in those leagues, he just completely demolished uh, those levels, and then he then he played in Serie Nacional and uh, you know had that you know one big year before he got suspended. Uh, uh, Puig, I mean, but you know Moncada had a you know similar track record in in those leagues every time he he went to an international tournament uh, the, the junior level scouts were uh jumping up and down about him uh he really really impressed them with his uh you know his his size i mean he's he's not a uh <laughs> he's not like a you know 180 pound like uh you know wiry guy he is a big uh thick dude but he can really run he's got hitting ability uh he's got power too you know, you could put him in uh, at second base. You could put him at third base, maybe even center field with his speed. Uh, you know, the bat. If you know, if, if you believe in it enough, I'm probably for some teams. I'm sure would profile even in a, a corner outfield spot too. So uh, it's not really clear what's what's going on with him. But I mean, I would put him in the the caliber of uh, you know of a guy like Puig or, or of a guy like Soler. Uh, when when these guys were the same age, this is this is definitely one of the best up and coming young players to come out of Cuba that that scouts have known and and followed for uh, for several years. He just hasn't had the opportunity in in recent years to uh, to show showcase his skills for uh, for the top national team just because he is still uh, 19 years old. Yeah, it's just fascinating to me. And like you said, the key now is you teams used to wait. And like that, their big way to see Cuban players was in the Olympics or World Cup or these big national tournaments. And if you wait on those to scout these guys, you lose. If you wait the Olympics, you really lose. Cause yeah. If you wait the Olympics, it's like, why? wait, I'm not seeing these guys. You have to, you're having to scout Eddie Alvarez in the Winter Olympics. Boy, that speed skating really is going to translate to baseball. So that's a whole other story and a whole other podcast. But uh, great stuff, Ben. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for making the time today. And uh, obviously, uh, subscribers, check that out. And I also like the companion piece Ben wrote on kind of what it's like to <laughs> watch a lot of Cuban games. <laughs> so uh, if only we could do that in person with some uh, arroz con pollo or uh, some plantains. I would, I, would, I would love a trip to Cuba. That's a bucket list uh, kind of trip to make, just to go see some Cuban baseball. But we'll see if that uh, changes in the next uh, – yeah, I, I have to hope that the last 50 years, that the past is not prologue what the next 50 years are going to be. Uh, and American-Cuban relations, but uh, we'll leave the politics out of the podcast. Great stuff, Ben. Thanks for the help, JJ. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you on the next Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.